0: Kia ora, g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Episode 84. Kia Mo! This podcast is supported by our amazing patrons, such as Kirk. If you want to support Hans, go to patreon.com/slash history Last time, we talked about probably one of the most famous aspects of Maori culture. The haka. Today we're going to delve into a specific haka, one that we mentioned last time and that most people will at least be aware of if they haven't heard it. That is, of course, Kamate, internationally most famous for being the haka performed before most games by the New Zealand men's national rugby team, the All Blacks. We did also mention last time that Kamate has a much longer history prior to that of the All Blacks. In fact, if you're listening to this episode at time of release in 2022, Kamate is around about 200 years old, as it was composed sometime around 1820. We aren't really sure of the exact dating. During this time, the major thing that was going on in Old Aotearoa was the Musket Wars. These were a series of conflicts between iwi that resulted mostly from the recent acquisition of the conflict's namesake muskets. Firearms gave iwi an unprecedented advantage over other iwi that didn't have them, so fairly soon musket-armed Towa were attacking their neighbours for historic grievances, just absolutely wiping the floor with them. The result of this was that some rangatira campaigned far further than they ever had before, and power was being consolidated into the hands of a few who conquered vast swaths of territory that their tipuna could never have done in the past. This also instigated an arms race, where other iwi tried to get access to muskets as soon as possible, to either attack their neighbours or be on a level playing field when those neighbours came knocking. We talked a bit about this in episode 34, when we discussed how toimoko, preserved heads, were a part of this economy of trying to trade for firearms. So this was the setting that Kamate was produced from, and in fact, it was composed by a fairly prominent rangatira who had quite the military mind. Te Rauparaha of Ngāti Toa, or rather Ngāti Mango. You see, there is some thinking that in Te Rauparaha's time, Ngāti Toa was actually called Ngāti Mango, after the rangatira who kinda started the iwi. Having an eponymous ancestor is a fairly common naming structure, and you find it with many other iwi, such as Ngāti Kahununu, who was named for Kahununu. So, just know that when I say Ngāti Mango in this episode, that this is the same as Nātītoa. Before we talk about the well known story of how Taroparaha came to compose Kamate, let's talk a bit more about who he was, in particular what his life was like before Kamate, and the key event that shaped how he ended up where he did. That event was the Battle of Hinakaka, and depending on who you ask, the battle either occurred before the birth of Taroparaha or around about the same time. Whatever the case, it's important to the story as a whole as to why Ngāti Māngo was in conflict with its neighbours, which leads to Te to becoming a very competent military commander, which influenced a lot of the decisions he made later in his life. Over the generations prior to Te birth, conflicts between hapu and iwi in the Waikato had led to two loose confederations of allies. On one side was Ngāti Māngo, who was allied with Nati Rokawa, Nati Whakateri, and Nati Takihiku? On the other side was Nati Maniapoto, Nati Howa, and some other iwi in the Waikato. The reason as to why these sides didn't like each other very much, which leads to the Battle of Hinakaka, isn't really super important. It was mostly a lot of different grievances that various people or groups had against each other such as helping to attack others, deaths of relatives, taking of wives, as well as hinakaka itself. All of this gradually deepened the animosity between the hapu and iwi who naturally drew alliances along the lines of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Basically, if Nati Mango and Nati Rokawa both had a problem with Nati Maniapoto, then it only made sense for Mango and Rokawa to team up against Maniapoto for safety. Another reason to throw into the pot is that Waikato iwi, that's Ngati Maniapoto and their friends, may have been looking to expand west into Kafia and the surrounding lands, since the area had good resources and excellent harbours. This was a bit of a problem, since Kafia was the rohe of Ngati Mango. As I mentioned earlier, Taroparaha was born into Ngati Toa, known fully as Ngati Toa Rangatera or in his time, Nati Mangō, around 1770, though some accounts also think he was born between 1780 and 1807. Wikipedia even lists his birth slightly earlier at 1768. Moral of the story is, we aren't really sure, given this would make him anywhere between 17 and 50 years old by the time of the Kamate story in 1820. What we are fairly certain of is that he died in November of 1849, which would make him about 80 years old if you use the early estimates of his birth. So no matter what his age, his death date does seem fairly plausible, as he died from a quote, wasting disease, end quote. But again, we just aren't really sure. Te was likely born in southern Kafir, southwest of modern Hamilton, which is where Ngāti Mango had been living for the last 150 years or so. Specifically, they were located at a kaina at the mouth of the Marokopa River, as well as controlling a few pā further south of the main settlement. For those of you who are a bit more up with it on Ngāti Toa, you may know that the modern iwi is more based around the Kapiti coast, the reason for this is because Taroparaha led them down that way later on in his life. He was the youngest of five kids, though he likely had a number of half siblings, and he had connections to Natirokawa as well through his parentage. Inakaka occurred near modern te awamutu, and although it was a result of all the animosity and grievances that had occurred over the years, the specific incident that set things in motion for this battle was an insult, or perhaps a perceived insult, to do with fish. Like with anything, there are two sides to this story that naturally favour the position of those telling it. The Ngāti side said that one of their areki, Piko was belittled at a feast held by Nati Kofata and Nati Apakura. Piko felt like he had been slighted by the two iwi because the condition of the kahawai he was served was substandard and not befitting of someone of his rank and mana. So, as Utu, he killed some members of Nati Apakura. As you might expect. Apakura were very not happy about this, and the whole thing kind of spiralled from there. The Nati Maniapoto side of the story, on the other hand, was that they, Kofata, and Apakura were helping mango to fish kahawai at the mouth of the Marokopa River. After the fishing was done and the haul was divided, Apakura felt like they had been slighted because Pikotarangi would always take the largest fish. Apparently, this fishing trip was a yearly thing, and each year Piko te Rangi would always make sure he had the best take from it. I assume that Piko counter counterargument was that since the fish were in his rohe, it was his right to take the best ones. But clearly, Apakura didn't see it that way, and some of them complained to their rangatira. This chief suggested that they should enact some utu at the next fishing meet. Specifically, they should dunk Pikotirangi's head in the water to rough him up a bit and show him what's what. I guess it was kind of like what you see in the movies, when someone is trying to get info from the bad guy and they push his head into a sink, nearly drowning him as an intimidation tactic. I say this because Pikotirangi nearly died, which wasn't really the intention. They were just trying to give him a bit of a scare. To add a bit of insult to injury after nearly drowning in a Apakura took all the fish and nets he had and headed home. Tarangi was obviously super pissed about this, but not just because he could have died. The head is a very tapu part of the body, and as such, touching and violating his head in this way was not only an affront to the mana of Piko Rangi, which remember he's an Ariki, it was quite vast, but also the mana of all of Nāti Mango. Piko Rangi then went ahead and killed some members of Apakura, cooking their bodies and eating them with members of Nāti Kōfata and Nāti Rokawa, ensuring they were all allied. Regardless of which side you believe, the result was the same. Piko headed south to gather people to fight for him, travelling all the way down the west coast to Te Teika, Te Ika, the head of the fish, or as we know it today, Wellington. On his travels, he gathered about 4,000 men, before travelling up the east coast to have a chat with Ngātepurau and Kahununu, gathering another 3,000. From what I understand, this was quite a sizable force for the time, and it really goes to show the extent of the grievances of these iwi, as well as the mana that Pikotarangi had to be able to amass an army of this size from multiple iwi. It's quite an achievement. This was a bit of a problem for the Waikato side, because the Ngāti force vastly outnumbered their own. Which, in turn, gave Pico Terangi quite a bit of confidence, since he just rocked back on up to the Waikato, invaded the enemy Rohe, and decided he was just going to brute force beat the shit out of them. What this meant was that the Waikato leader, Te Roanana, needed to play his situation a lot smarter he sang a waiata when he arrived at the battlefield the day before the main event. This waiata referred to the wailing of the wind, and was considered a bad omen if it was ever heard. The morning of the battle, he had toroa feathers, which are a symbol of chieftainship, attached to branches, trying to make Pikoterangi think that there were more rangatira than there actually were. In turn, making the army look much more formidable, as well as having the added effect of disguising where the actual rangatira were. These were placed with a small group of men away from the main site of the battle, to look like reinforcements for the Waikato side. Another waiata was sung on the day, and this one referenced strength and there being plenty of food ready for eating which apparently shook the confidence of the invading army. I won't go too much into the details of how the battle played out, but the main points are that Piko was killed, possibly by Te Raua Nana himself, which very much weakened the morale of the Nati Mango force. Their retreat was then blocked off and they were stuck, wedged into a small spit of land against a lake, causing some to try and swim away, but... They were killed once they reached the shore. In the end, this resulted in a loss for Nāti Mango and their allies, losing a significant amount of Rangatira in the process. A lot of this loss was down to Tiroa Nana's tactic of placing the dummy group away from the main force. Pikoturangi fell for it hook line and sinker, believing it was some kind of relief force waiting to jump in at the right moment. So he made strategic choices based on that, which Nāna could exploit since it was all a ruse. After the battle, the Waikato iwi held a feast for their victory and ritually ate those they had killed. This defeat would have been very fresh in the minds of te Rau Paraha and those around him. The need and desire for Utu would have been high, not only to restore their mana, but also to ensure the general security of their position in the region. During his childhood and into young adulthood, Taroparaha took a rather big interest in doing just that, especially as his uncle was killed at Hinakaka. As an aside, the name of the battle can have a couple of different meanings depending on the spelling and pronunciation. Both names are taken from the perspective of the Waikato victory, so it possibly refers to the Ngāti Mangōrangatira having fallen like parrots being hunted for a feast, or perhaps references their feather cloaks if spelt Hinakaka, or could mean that their enemies were fish to be swept into a net if spelt Hinakaka. So because of this battle and everything surrounding it, Taroparaha was quite quickly thrust into the soldier's life. Well, not quite the average soldier's life. Although in his early years he wasn't a rangatira, that is to say not a chief as we would know it, he was a member of the noble class. So he would be leading men as well as fighting. And apparently Taroparaha showed great strategic ability pretty much straight away. So, it wasn't long before he was taking a fairly significant role in battle. Teroparaha's son, Tamihana, writes that the following story took place when Teroparaha took offence when a hakari of Kaimoana was being made by Nati Homia, a close kin of Nati Mango. Their eponymous ancestors, Mango and Homia, were brothers, hence the relation. Teroparaha's betrothed, Marori, didn't have any kinaki assigned to her meal, which he took offence to, remembering that kinaki are meaty relishes that go on top of food, and that these would usually indicate someone is of high rank. He suggested to his father that they should form a towa and attack Waikato, making a kinaki from their meat. Although no one in Waikato had caused them offence, at least not on this occasion, it apparently wasn't uncommon to attack a tribe that you had little to no whakapapa with to obtain Utu, especially if the group that caused you offence is quite closely related to you, and as such you wouldn't want to attack them for this. His father agreed with the plan, and Tiruparaha went with the Towa. Potentially due to his age, he was positioned in the rear as the battle progressed he saw that nati Mango were being routed so he decided to hide himself in some bushes. soon after four Waikato men walked past, and Tiroparaha jumped out and killed them with his taiaha all on his own a fearsome display that was said to cause Waikato to flee from that point on was only grew in prominence, mostly through his battle prowess and strategic mind, other more powerful rangatira seeking his and Natitoa's protection in times of war. All of this led him to being picked for promotion through the ranks fairly quickly, possibly overlooking more senior chiefs who would normally have been picked for such honours. He was known for his quick thinking, and able to grasp opportunities, both on and off the battlefield. For example, when attending a meeting to decide the successor of the current Ngāte Ariki, he publicly put his name forward, despite being considered somewhat too young for the role. But, since no one else stepped forward, he was named the successor, and took up the mantle of Ariki after the current chief died. His rule was marked with a number of conflicts, in part due to his fiery disposition and unwillingness to back down from a fight. One of the key events in Taroparaha's early life and military education was when he spent some time at Monatoteri, near modern Cambridge, where his uncle was an ariki of Ngati His uncle, along with other relatives, seemed to have seen the potential of Taroparaha, and that he could one day do great things. So, they wanted to mentor him to make sure he could reach his full potential. To this end, he became his uncle's Kai Hapirako, his arms bearer. This saw Taroparaha fighting with his uncle, carrying extra weapons, and replacing those that were lost or broken. All while, presumably, he asked his uncle questions, who would try and give him lessons of fighting and leadership. Te Rau Paraha also developed quite good oratory skills, was well known for his generous hospitality, and was quite well travelled, knowing a lot about the rohe, rangatira and other aspects of iwi as far south as Taupo and as far north as Horaki. He travelled by waka and on foot, which was pretty much the only two forms of transport at the time, so this also helped with his physical condition. Like all young Māori, Taroparaha had Taamoko started on his face, though apparently it was never finished, and we don't really know why that is. There could be a number of different reasons, but all of them really would be speculation. There's a lot more to say about Taroparaha's early years, but the general gist is that he spent a fair amount of time at war and in battle, often in a significant role, if not in a position of leadership. He had a few instances where he was up against a larger force or had to hold or take a par and managed to come out on top when the odds were probably against him. His home in Kafia was constantly under threat, usually by iwi in Waikato, but he clapped back pretty well himself too. As such, he grew up fighting, strategizing and sieging and he became very fucking good at it. Because of all this conflict, Te Rauparaha and Nāti needed new allies to help defend themselves and their positions in Kafia. Pretty much all of their usual allies, like Nāti Rokawa, weren't super keen on helping them anymore. So he had to go a bit further afield to find aid, which led him to heading for Taupō, to chat to the Ariki, Te of Tūwharitoa. On his way to Taupō, Tiroparaha learned that the Hapu, Nati Tiaho, had sent a small party to ambush him in response to an attack that Ngāti Mango had made against them some years earlier. An attack that was led by Tiroparaha himself. He hadn't really expected a fight on this trip, so he picked up the pace to reach to Huhu and seek his protection. There is a bit of a divide here in the sources though. As some accounts differ as to whether Tiroparaha found out about the ambush on his own somehow, or whether Tehuhu himself informed him when he arrived. Either way, Tehuhu told Tiroparaha Te that he wouldn't be able to give any protection against Ngati since they were a hapu within Tu Faritoa, which Tehuhu was the Ariki of. It wasn't exactly a good look to side with an outsider against your own iwi especially when that outsider attacked those people from your iwi. Thankfully for the Ngāti Mango chief, Te Hiuhu must have been on fairly good terms with his peer, because he did offer an alternative. He told Te Rau that he should go see the rangatira Te Farirangi, Rangi, who had a pa on Motupuhi, an island in Lake Rotoaria to the south. Te Rau took his advice and did just that, thankfully managing to make it to Te pā without much incident. However, his people weren't terribly keen to help the newcomer. You see, Te Wharirangi and his people were also part of Tufari Tor, so they had more sympathy for Te Roparaha's pursuers. It seems that pretty much the only reason Te Wharirangi actually helped was out of obligation, in that his ariki was the one requesting this, and that's not the sort of person you ignore. This is where the story takes a bit more of a legendary turn. By this point, the Aho pursuers had found out that Tiroparaha had headed in the direction of Lake Rotoaria and had begun to catch up. This feat of tracking was due to a Tohonga who was speaking a Karakia and other incantations to keep on Tiroparaha's scent. This was obviously. Pretty bad, and it was only a matter of time before Natetyaho arrived at the pa and found Taroparaha, which would put Tafariangi in a very awkward situation indeed. So instead, Tafariangi instructed Taroparaha to climb into a rua, a pit used to store kumara, and for his wife to sit on top of the pit. Again, this is where the stories differ ever so slightly. The more widely told version of the story definitely has the rua be a pit in the ground, with a covering that Te wife, Terangi sits on top of. That part is pretty clear, because there is a bit that we will talk about in a second that doesn't really work unless the rua is set up in that way. However, it has been put forward that the rua could possibly have been one set into the side of a hill, rather than dug in the ground, which would mean that Tarangi Kwaya was actually in front of the door rather than above a pit. Another slightly different version is that the pit was dug into Farirangi's daughter's fare, specifically for Tiroparaha to hide in, which was then covered with sticks and a fariki. The daughter then sat on the mat, and as she was a virgin, meaning she was tapu, the pursuers didn't investigate the fare all that much. For our purposes though, we're gonna stick with the rua pit, with terangi sitting on top of it. This was important because the noa properties of the kumara inside the pit, combined with the noa properties of a woman, specifically her genitalia, would neutralize the efforts of the enemy tohunga, who was very tapu and was doing all sorts of tapu stuff. The genitalia aspect is particularly important since due to the actions of Maui trying to conquer death, it was thought that the vagina had a certain power to remove men's mana, and other such mysterious abilities. In addition to the tracking karakia, the Tohunga was also trying to paralyze Taroparaha, so that he couldn't move away from wherever he was, thus making him easier to find. He still somewhat felt the effects of the karakia, though, despite Tarangi Kawaiya's efforts, and it was here. In the dark pit in the ground, that Taroparaha made his feelings known to the earth. <speaking in foreign language> let your valour rise, let your temper rage. We'll ward off the desecrating touch while protecting our wives and children. Te Rauparaha continued with his incantations to protect Terangi Kawaya who was sitting above him. He ponga rahui te uia ka peru kariri mauwe korore. Hi, ha! Kawehioka matakana! Kowaitetanga ta re, re, ure, teruhanga rua rera rera, narua kuri, kakanui irao, ah ha ha! For ye all, I'll defy the lightning of the heavens. The foe, he will stand frustrated. In his mad and impotent rage, mine ears will then be speared. The maiden's despairing cry, will ye O sir possess me? The thought makes me quail. Who, in his manhood, will stand affrightened or in his terror, flee for he will surely perish, and in the refuse pit will lie as food for dogs to gnaw with relish. It was at this point that Tioparaha could hear the feet and voices of his pursuers, come mate, come mate, tis death, tis death." But thankfully, he wasn't found, with Tefari telling the Ntatiyaho leaders that he had run off to Taranaki. Koda, koda! Tis life, tis life. Ntatiyaho didn't believe him, though. Kamate, kamate! After some more convincing from Tefari Rangi, Teroparaha heard the footsteps subside as the pursuers left. Koda, koda! Once given the all clear, Taroparaha rose from the pit and gave his thanks to his saviors. itiki Behold, there stands the hairy man who will cause the sun to shine. It's thought that this line is specifically in reference to Tifarirangi since he was the one that saved Taroparaha. He hid him, protected him, and he lied to Natitiaho te for him. So it would make sense that he would be praised for keeping Tiroparaha safe and allowing him to see the sun again. Additionally, rangi was known to have rather hairy legs and possibly just be a hairy man in general, which explains the hairy man part. Interestingly, there is also some thought that he wasn't referencing rangi at all in this line. But rather, his wife, Tirangi Kawaiya. This also fits since she was the one on top of the pit using her Noah body to protect him, and she may have also been saying some karakia of her own to add some extra oomph. The bit that probably doesn't make as much immediate sense is the hairy man part. Remember, Terangi Kawaiya was sitting above the pit and was specifically using her genitalia to protect Taroparaha. This meant that she possibly had her pubic region right over the entrance of the pit, right where Tiruparaha could see it. And well, let's just say that laser hair removal wasn't around in the 1820s. Finally, as Tiruparaha left the pit, he exclaimed, A upane ka upane, a upane kapune fitetera. One step upwards, another step upwards, the sun shines. And so, that is the story of how Kamate came into being. A lot of these lines can be translated to mean slightly different things, as you might expect. So don't take these translations as absolutely correct. I've seen a few different translations of the same lines, and although they all differ wildly sometimes... They all have the same general gist to them. I also apologise for any mistakes in pronunciation or pacing and beat. I did my best to replicate the haka as, as it is, but it's a bit difficult when you're by yourself in a room and you split the whole haka up into various parts and that sort of thing. So if it feels a bit weird, that's probably why. What we've spoken about here isn't the full haka though. There are actually more verses, but those are mostly only performed by Nati Toa, with everyone else just doing the most famous verse. Another little aside is that in one version of this story, as told by a descendant of Tifarirangi, it wasn't Nati Tiaho that was chasing him, but rather another Iwi from Waikato. However, I'm not sure whether this is true, as it would slightly invalidate Te Hiuhu's reasoning for not wanting to help Taroparaha, the whole siding with an outsider, but perhaps he had other reasons such as not wanting to get involved in an outside conflict. Something interesting is that not all iwi consider kamate to be a good and appropriate thing. One source I read describes how a university group from the North Island in the 1980s was received into a kaitahu marae in the South Island with karanga and waiata. When it was time for the university group to respond, one younger member stood up and began his speech by performing kamate. Unfortunately for him, none of his mates joined in, something you would probably expect as it shows agreement and solidarity in your side. It sounds like it was a bit of an embarrassment as the Kaitahu speakers actually told him to sit down, though they didn't seem too offended. The reason for this rather icy reception was that Te was most well known down south for his raid when he captured a Kaitahu rangatira, along with his wife and daughter, with the aid of a European captain. The chief and his wife, predicting what Taroparaha would do to their daughter, strangled her. The two parents were subsequently tortured and killed. This enraged other Kaitahu chiefs so much that they staunchly resisted further raids from Taroparaha and managed to successfully repel him. As I mentioned earlier, Te lived a fairly long life, and he got a lot accomplished in that time, including moving Ngāti Toa down south and the taking of Kapiti Island. He's a very fascinating figure, and I'll cover him later down the line in his own episode. But for now, let's jump forward a bit and talk about Kamate in the context outside of Te Of course, where most people know the haka is from its use in sport, specifically rugby, and is now used not just in professional sport, but in schools and other more local sports as well. The All Blacks, the national men's rugby team who most famously perform kamate, have actually performed the haka for over 100 years, but they haven't always been very good at it, as you can see from earlier games compared to today. They are, to put it bluntly, downright atrocious. The first time Kamate was performed was by the team that was later known as the Originals in 1905, when they were doing a tour of Britain. Despite them doing a pretty rubbish job of the whole thing compared to today's standard, it was very well received by the British public. So well received, in fact, that apparently they requested the Aussies to do a similar performance when they toured a few years later. Which, of course, they weren't able to oblige. In the realm of sport, the haka was kind of left there as a bit of a weird thing that the All Blacks did that one time. That is, until the team, later dubbed the Invincibles, performed a different haka that was written especially for them in 1924. It was from then on that Kamate was regularly performed by the ABs when they went overseas. This continued on for the next 60 years, and at this point, the All Blacks weren't the household name that they are today. They were a lot less well known. It wasn't until the 1987 Men's Rugby World Cup, hosted in New Zealand, that the ABs saw mass appeal. The ABs performed phenomenally well in that World Cup, and it's here where the haka starts to get a bit of a mythos, and a bit of gravitas, and people start fearing it. By people, in particular I mean other teams and their coaches. They believed that the ABs had an edge with the use of the haka. At the time, no one else was able to perform any similar sort of ritual before a game, so Rumours and theories began to circulate that the All Blacks were so hard to beat, perhaps totally unbeatable, because Kamate allowed them to do something that no one else could. Some thought it was due to the mental games, the intimidation, the haka was getting into the heads of the other players and causing them not to play as well, but of course There were others that thought that the haka wasn't a mental thing, or even maybe a physical thing where it amped up the All Blacks, but that it was a mystical art, and that the AB's advantage was because of some spooky woo-woo magic stuff. These sorts of stories still circulate around from time to time, especially in more recent years when the AB's have won back-to-back World Cups, and there really isn't a consensus on whether it actually does confer any sort of advantage. That doesn't stop the ABs leaning into the legend though, because that does get into the heads of other teams. The more the ABs are built up in the mind of their opponents, the more mental games they can play. You even occasionally see some overseas coaches saying to their players and the media to not refer to them as the All Blacks, but rather the New Zealand Men's National Rugby Team, which is what they do for every other sports team, because by calling the All Blacks by their actual name and not by the country they represent, it adds to the legend, to the mythos, and thus adds to their perceived invulnerability. In more recent years, there has been a lot of debate as to whether the haka should actually still be performed by the All Blacks. Some, including a few current and former All Blacks, believe that the haka has lost some of its potency, if you kind of get what I mean, and that it is no longer special because it is used before every single game. Some have argued that it should only be used on either home or away games, or perhaps another haka should be used for most games, with kamate being reserved for special games, such as the World Cup Final. Colin Meads, a prominent former player in particular, was quite vocal about removing the haka from the ABs altogether, despite having performed it himself for many years. Another aspect to the debate around the haka is to do with the opposing team and how they should respond to it, or if they should respond at all. There has been numerous cases of opposing teams approaching the ABs during the haka. Probably the most famous recent one was the 2011 Men's Rugby World Cup final, where France approached in a V formation. This actually resulted in France being fined for getting within 10 metres of the ABs, a rule made by the International Rugby Board. This fine was widely regarded as fairly insulting, as France's response was seen by many as an appropriate one. All they did was walk forward, which indicated they had risen to the challenge presented by the haka. But they did break the rule, so they were fined. Since 2014, there has actually been a bunch of rules around how Kamate can and can't be used, not just in the context of sport. This is laid out in the Kamate Attribution Act of 2014, which was kinda the result of a bunch of legal stouches between Toa and the NZRB, as well as their settlements under the Waitangi Tribunal. That's a whole story quite outside the scope of this episode so we won't get into it but the moral of the story is that to ensure the mana of the Kamate Haka including the man who created it and his descendants that being Ngāti Toa there are a bunch of rules around how Kamate can be used along with special recognition of its creator and the iwi he belongs to. Due to this act since I have included the words of Kamate in this episode, I am actually legally obligated to make an attribution statement acknowledging Te as the creator of Kamate and that he was the leader of Nati Toa. Okay, well, that's not quite totally true. This attribution, normally, is for commercial use of the haka. Say, if I was using the words in a book I intended to sell. But doesn't apply to educational purposes, which I would think would include this podcast. However, it is stated in the Kamate guidelines that, quote, educational books, films, or other teaching resources generally require an attribution statement, end quote. And I would define Hans as a teaching resource, so I am legally bound to have that statement. Though, I feel like since we've spent All this time talking about how Taroparaha made Kamate, including the story of its conception, I'll probably be all good. Next time, we'll be taking our usual between topics break with a dramatic retelling of a Maori legend. So if you have any ideas for what you'd like to hear, please get in touch. After that, well, if you follow me on social media, you will already know. For the rest of you, Here's a hint. If you want to send me feedback, ask a question, suggest a topic, or just have a chin wag, you can find my email and social media on historyoltearoa.com. Aotearoa spelt A O T E A R O A. You can also find helpful resources there, like transcripts, sources, and translations for some of the te reo Māori we have used. You can help support Hans through Patreon, buying merch, or giving us a review. It means a lot, and helps spread the story of Aotearoa New Zealand. As always, haere tu atu, hoki tu mai. See you next time.